Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Make our declaration. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. I am about to be taught from the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And I will never be the same. I will never, ever be the same again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Y'all ready to do battle in the Word? All right. Well, I want to tell you, we're starting on session 10 tonight. Uh, We had a a pretty small crowd last week, but I understand it was really cold last week, but that's all right. We'll recover. But uh, I just wanted to say, anybody that wasn't here last week would like to have a copy of uh, session number nine. It's important for that because uh, there's a list of things that the the high priest duties that you really need. JC's got copies of it. He'll pass them around if you'd like to get that because when you may need to refer back to that, uh, you know, later on, or you'll understand when you see uh, lesson nine what the, why it follows through with lesson ten and everything as we go through. But I just want you to have a copy of that. And uh, last week was part one of the Day of Atonement, and tonight we're doing uh, part two of the Day of Atonement. So we're we're, uh, we're I'm just going to do a little flashback on a few of the things we talked about towards the end of. Uh, last week's, and then we'll move right into the to the rest of part two. Really good stuff tonight. Lean in and listen. Get your pen ready. I hope you got a pen ready for uh, notes because there's a few things you need to write down and look up later on. But I think it's really going to be uh, a value to it. Every, I don't care. Every time I come to church, it's a value to me. I don't know about y'all, but I get something every time I come. I don't care if we're praying, we're having a budget meeting, or, or whatever it is. I get something out of it. So. Uh, because you come, if you come with an open heart, you're going to receive something. I promise you in that. All right, let's get started. Session 10, the Day of Atonement, Part 2. Okay, just a l- little refresher, a Day of Atonement. The, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was the most important day of the year for the Jewish nation. More so back in biblical times than it is now, even though it's still considered the high holy day of the year. Much like we Christians consider Easter and Christmas and just as much So it has been secularized to the point that it has lost much of its holy and solemn significance to the Jewish people of today. And if you go through part one, uh, you'll have more of it to lead up to where we are to now. But we said some things, you know, I told you about just like uh, we have C&E Christians, well, we have uh, C&E Jews too, you know. I mean, like Christmas and Easter Christians, you know, that's the only time they show up. Well, Yom Kippur was probably one of the holidays that the the Jews only showed up for that day or did those kind of things because the rest of the time most of them just ignored it. And it's been watered down, and of course the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So since that time, they have not had the sacrificial system in place, and the Jews, uh, they can't do it the way they did it back uh, in, in its original intent. So that's part of the reason, too, it's fell away from that. But we'll get into that more, even so, even more into next lesson, too, when we talk about the Day of Tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles. This day was also the biggest day for the high priest. On this day, he was the most important man on the planet, and for the Hebrew people, he had the most important job to do, to intercede by atonement for the sins of the nation. <clears throat> this was a make-or-break day, both for him and for the nation of Israel. Leviticus chapter 16 outlines the actual details of the process and ritual in, in, in part one. Uh, and in part one, there's a list of 18 things that he, the high priest, had to do with 
that day, mostly by himself. In that list, there's a list of, I think, uh, well, it's in there, list of 18. And what, we got down to number eight on that list, and we're talking about where Aaron, he was the first high priest consecrated after the, uh, consecrated after the Exodus when, when they were in the wilderness. So he had taken, at this point, he had taken the censer of hot coals with incense and had entered the Holy of Holies to make it safe for him to be in the presence of the Shekinah glory by putting the incense on the coals, making a cloud of smoke to shield him from certain death. Do I need to stop for a minute? Okay. Now the high priest must exit the Holy of Holies and retrieve uh, the blood of the bullock, which he, it was his sin offering for him and his house, and bring it inside the veil to the Ark of the Covenant. There at the mercy seat, shielded from the consuming presence of God by the incense smoke, he sprinkled the blood upon once upon the mercy seat and seven times before it, according to verse 17. Now, we're studying out of Leviticus 16. I think I told you that earlier. But, you know, we started with the Leviticus 23 where it identified the feast, uh, ordained the feast. But actually, there's more uh, detail in, in Leviticus 16. So I encourage you to get your Bibles out and read Leviticus 16 along with everything that we're going over on this so you'll have a good idea of what we're talking about. I'll say, okay, so we uh, remember seven, he sprinkled it seven times. Remember, seven is the number for perfection. This is the type looking ahead to the perfect sacrifice that will come and not only cover sins, but completely take them away. And his name is Jesus. Can you say it with me? Jesus. Jesus. Like Pastor Travis might say, you know, he, or, or Miss Bonnie, if she got a little Pentecostal, she might say it. She could probably do that. Glory. All right. Hebrews 7.27 says, and we're talking about Jesus here. Uh, the writer is talking about Jesus. He says, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Just talking about here, here we had uh, Aaron go in and he had to sacrifice the bullock and sprinkle the mercy seat for him and his sons at uh, the first first time or second time he went into the Holy of Holies. The next step in the process was to take the two goats selected earlier and present them before the Lord. That We find that in Leviticus 16, uh, 7 through 10. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So as we can see in these verses, the two kid goats selected were presented to the Lord at the altar before the door of the tabernacle for all to see, one on the right hand and one on the left side, uh, or left side of the, uh, before the priest, facing west toward the tabernacle because that's where they were out in the in front of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle faces east, so they were facing west toward uh, the Holy of Holies. That's what it means when it says before the Lord. So the lots were cast by the high priest for the goats, one for the Lord and one for the other goat, which was called the scapegoat. Now, we've already re we read that in there, but I want you to keep that scapegoat in mind, the scapegoat or Azazel. It, it, some translations actually put it in there as Azazel. Most, uh, most don't, but anyway, that's the same word, scapegoat and Azazel. It was always considered a good sign if the lot for the goat for the Lord came up in the right hand ra rather than the left. Now, the Jewish people, what they always thought the right hand meant righteousness, the left hand meant wickedness. So they always wanted, if it could be, the lot for the Lord to come up in the right hand. 
and we'll talk more about that later and the significance of that. Now, after the high priest has offered the blood of the bullock and the holy of holies for his sins and for those of the son, uh, sons so that he is acceptable for the, for the Lord, it's time to offer the goat that was selected by Lot for the Lord as a sin offering for the, two, for the people. So remember, he's, he's selecting, they're selected, he's, he's got them out there. This is number nine thing on the list, that list that's on in, in, uh, in, in the last uh, session, number nine. The goat for the Lord is slain, and it's blood collected in a vessel. For the third time, he's already been in there twice. He's been in there once to take the, the incense, to put the incense in there so he'd be shielded from the, from the presence of God. And then he's gone in with the blood of the bullock for, to sprinkle on there for the sin of the uh, priesthood, actually Aaron and his sons. So now he's going in for the third time that he's entering in. The high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and offers the blood of the sin offering for the people in the camp. This is a very anxious and sobering moment a moment of faith, and a moment of truth. The people are trusting in the work of the high priest and the blood of an animal to cover their sins and bring forgiveness for an entire nation for one more year. The high priest sprinkles the blood of the innocent substitutionary sacrifice seven times on the mercy seat, just as he did the bull. The mercy seat that covers the Ark of the Covenant where inside are the stone tablets where the Ten Commandments are written. We talked about this. We studied that before uh, in uh, the... Uh, T uh, wilderness tabernacle study and we went through that in great detail you can go back and look at that if you have a chance the very laws which have been broken by the people uh, that's the that was the uh, ten commandments they're they're in the ark of the covenant underneath the mercy seat which sets above uh that on the on the ark of the covenant you know it's the solid gold cover that has the two cherubim with their wings touching each other right in in the middle is considered the mercy seat and that's where the presence of god uh is supposed to be at that moment, as God looks down from the cloud of the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, he doesn't see the sin of the nation. He sees the blood because he sprinkled the blood. He sees the blood, the blood of the innocent sacrifice that was given to pay the penalty for sin. Just as in the first Passover back in Egypt, we talked about that as first one of our first feasts, or the first feast we talked about, we talked about where God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Well, in the same way, when he sees the blood applied to the mercy seat, his throne changes from a throne of judgment to a throne of mercy. Isn't that good? He changes from judgment to mercy when he sees that blood. Justice has been administered, administered and God's wrath has been vindicated. Now, I don't know about you, but that ought to be a hallelujah moment right there. I, I put it on my page. You don't have it on yours. But, but anyway, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It ought to be, every one of us ought to be shouting for joy when we see that, when he sees the blood, because you know what I'm talking about when I say when he sees the blood. And so that's where it come from right there. This typifies Christ who became sin for us, suffering the penalty of our sin. Though he knew no sin, just as the goat was innocent without blemish, so was the Son of Man. The picture we see here is the greatest of all exchanges recorded in history. You know what it is? The exchange is our sin for his righteousness. Isn't that good? What a deal. If we miss out on a deal like that, we're fools, you know, and we truly are. But we didn't have to. We 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 accepted it, and we, man, what a good what a what a deal. Second Corinthians uh, identifies it five twenty one says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as he comes from the inside of the veil, the high priest then takes some of the atoning blood and applies it to the horns of the incense altar inside the inner court, but which is called the holy place, 
You can read that back in the read. Go back and look at it when on your own time in thir Exodus thirty ten. You can read where that's part of it. You know, you got to study these things out and find out what all is going on. But that you can go back and look at that. As he comes out from the inner court to the outer court, there must have been either a victory shout or a great sigh of relief because the high priest had made it so far. You know, the people are sitting out there anticipating what he's doing. They know he's going in there to atone for the sins of the nation. And I'm sure their heart's beating just uh, probably not as much as his is because, you know, this is a defining moment for him. But I, when he comes out, then obviously up to that point, the, 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 the uh, atoning blood has been accepted by God. He has survived. Uh, he has survived the first phase of the atonement ritual. Now out in the outer court, he takes some of the blood of the bull and of the goat and applies it to the horns of the brazen altar of burnt sacrifice and sprinkles the altar seven times with the blood. This is the ceremonial cleansing of the altar from the sinfulness of the nation. So now we're up to number 12 on the list. The high priest is far from being done for the day as we move on to number 13. We'll see that in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20 and through 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them, in, uh, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and it shall be released, and, it, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." is it when you get up here you get a runny nose sometimes but <laughs> anyway i don't want to want to i got i got john sitting up here for me thank you john what is spoken here is the other goat uh, here is the other goat which was left alive called the scapegoat we we talked about the scapegoat or azazel in many translations this goat is then presented alive before the Lord where Aaron, the high priest, would lay hands on its head and confess the sins of the nation, thereby transferring the sins to the Azazel to make atonement upon it. Then it was to be led by an upright man into the uninhabited wilderness, approximately 12 miles away, to be released, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. We can see in this a distinct prophetic implication being fulfilled by Jesus where John the Baptist made this declaration about him when he seen him Coming down the road, he said this in John uh, 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that neat the way things fit together from the Old Testament into the New? Praise the Lord. The next, uh, the word Azazel, uh, we'll dwell on that for just a little bit. It's important for us to understand uh, where all these words are and the things, what it means. The word Azazel comes from two Hebrew words, uh, Azazel meaning goat, and azel, which it means departure. Therefore, the azazel was the goat of departure. This is the literal, literal translation of the Hebrew word. <clears throat> there are some very compelling commentaries that say that azazel is also actually the name of a place or the name of an entity or personality such as a demon or fallen angel representing Satan, or that there was an actual name, a place named azazel where the scapegoat was led to. I think I read someplace there is a, a even a mountain or a small mountain or someplace out in the wilderness, a, a peak, a, a, a precipice of some sort uh, that was called Azazel. Maybe I, I, I didn't confirm that. 
there are other things taught about Azazel that do not uh, uh, was this peak was Azazel where the scapegoat was led to, and there there are other things taught about Azazel that do not have enough support in, in, in actual inspired and uh, accepted scripture to pursue to any great de degree. Now, there's, you can look at it and look, at, look it up on your own if you want to. There's some compelling arguments about that, too. But I believe in this case it is better to stick with the literal and simple truth as outlined in Leviticus 16 uh, passages. You'll see it in verse 8, uh, verse 10, and verse 26. That's where uh, Azazel or scapegoat is used. Two things to support that tr uh, simple train of thought of literal interpretation, according to Finest Dake and his uh, comments in the Dake Annotated Reference Bible. Anybody have that Bible or use it or anything? It's pretty good. And uh, I, anyway, I use it a lot, but I, he's got such comprehensive notes in there. But he, one of the things he says is, how can Satan or his representative have any place in the atonement process if we use Azazel as a demon? And how could Azazel be designated or as, as a specific or a designated or a specific place when the original wilderness tabernacle where this atonement ritual first took place was not a permanent setting for the 40 years the Israelites were wandering around? Remember, this was not a permanent campsite. They wandered for 40 years. They went multiple, multiple places along that journey. So when, when the Israelites were established in the land whereby the tabernacle was in its permanent location of Jerusalem and later as the temple, it was written in the writings of the sages that there were actually 10 or more upright men involved in escorting the goat to the right place, the scapegoat we're talking about. Now, they, they were set up at stations approximately one mile apart where each man uh, could travel because, remember, this is a Sabbath, and it says no work to be done. So you could only the Sabbath only allowed you to do a certain amount of work. Uh, so they were set up at stations approximately one mile apart where each man would, could travel with the goat of departure no more than a Sabbath day's journey, which was about a mile, to get the scapegoat to its destination. Initially, the goat was led away and turned loose in the wilderness. According to the history, uh, historical records in the Talmud and other places, there was at least one, <coughs> excuse me, one instance where the scapegoat actually found its way back to town. Of course, that was considered a bad omen and led to them thinking that their sins had come back upon them. So the priestly officials and rabbis decided that, that when the scapegoat would be led in the wilderness, it would end up at a rugged high cliff where it was kicked off by the suitable man, resulting in the death of the scapegoat could, so it could never, ever return. Good idea, I guess. Uh, it would be embarrassing. Here comes the goat. <laughs> That's the one we released. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. So also in the rabbinical writings, later in the temple, times a scarlet thread or woven cord was tied around the horns of the scapegoat and around the neck of the goat for the Lord to keep them from being mixed up with uh, the other goats that might have been in the area. So I, I, I just braided a little scarlet. I just want you to get an idea of what they probably wrapped something like this. Uh, it says a scarlet thread, but I think it's more like a cord or a, or a pretty good sized piece of uh, uh, red crimson scarlet cloth around the horns of both goats because there was other goats in the area. And, you know, it would be kind of embarrassing once the priest has laid his hands on the on the one, uh, you know, put the sins of the one on there. If you got mixed up with the herd some way or another in the process, that how are you going to do it to find the, find the right goat? So, uh, And then another scarlet cord of the same size and material was tied on the curtain of the tabernacle and later the temple door like a banner up high where it could be seen by everyone. When the scapegoat had reached the wilderness destination as much as 12 miles away and was set free or kicked off the cliff, 
it is claimed that the cord on the door of the tabernacle or temple turned from red to white. This is what, what we believe to, to be what Isaiah was referring to in this passage, Isaiah 1.18, where he says, very familiar, you've heard this many times, now come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they are as red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, I want to elaborate just a little bit on there. There's some, there's some good things here because this is, this is amazing uh, about that. Because I want to start, you know, right there where it says, though your sins are like scarlet. I want to take a little, just a minute on that uh, word. It's, in, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a word that can be interpreted in several different ways. But uh, there's a passage in that scripture. It's, it's, it's the same number, uh, Strong's number, as the one that's, that's in uh, Psalm 22. Six, which is about the suffering Messiah, and this is what twenty-two six. I didn't put it up there. Psalm twenty-two six says, and it's talking about Jesus, of course, prophetically speaking about Jesus. And he says, he says, this is what Jesus is saying. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Worm in that passage, and scarlet in the passage of Isaiah are the identical same word. So basically what it means is it's a scarlet worm. So he says, my sins are like the scarlet worm. And in, in uh, 22.6 in Psalms, he's, Jesus is saying, but I am a scarlet worm. Now, the reason I say that, let me give you some history on that. This scarlet color, it's interpreted. It comes from, uh, it, 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 you actually go look it up and, and, it, and, and, and research it. It comes from a particular worm that's only in the Middle East area. And it's called the uh, Cocus or caucus worm, C-O-C-C-U-S. You can look it up yourself and read about it, but it's called a caucus worm. And, and, that, and that word means actually, for some reason, it means double-dipped. And I think because scarlet, in this thread here, it's, it means double-dipped because the scarlet is one of the hardest colors to remove. I mean, you ever tried to get blood out of a white shirt? How hard is it to bleach it out? It's really hard. It's very indelible. Let me, let me just read you this about the scarlet worm the life cycle of the crimson worm, what they call the crimson worm. This is where they get the material to make the scarlet that they dyed, uh, the scarlet uh, dye that they make here. You know, this is the same color that they have for the priestly robes that they put in the priestly robes. We talked about that back in, in our wilderness tabernacle. But this is what it says. The crimson worm, which looks more like a grub than a worm, it, it, it talks about when the female crimson worm, this is, a, be looking, I mean, read, uh, be, this, you don't have this in here, but be thinking with your mind the picture that this is showing. When the female crimson worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only once in her life, only once in her life, she climbs up on a tree or a fence or a post and attaches herself to it. With her body attached to the, to the wood, a hard crimson shell forms. It is a shell so hard and so secured to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would kill the worm. The female worm lays her eggs under her body, under the protective shell. She lays her eggs under her body that she built on this wood. When the larvae, larvae hatch, they remain under the mother's protective shell so the baby worm worms can feed on the living body of the mother worm for three days. After three days, the mother worm dies, and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she is attached and also her baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson colored for their entire lives. Therefore, or thereby, they are identified as crimson worms. On day four, the, the tail of the mother worm pulls up into her head, forming a heart-shaped body that is no longer crimson, 
but is turned into snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on a tree or fence. It then begins to flake off and drop to the ground, looking like snow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, they are red like crimson, and they shall be as wool. I know a man that put his body on wood, and it turned that wood scarlet by the blood that come from him, and he died, and he died so we could have life. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what that is right there? I mean, that is awesome picture. I couldn't help but share that with you. So good. So look it up for yourself. I mean, you can read that, and it just even there's even more in there like that, but it's just so, so good that it points to Jesus in such a uh, specific way. And there's so much in there, you know. This is what they call in the Hebrew uh, hermeneutics, it's what they call a remez. In other words, it's a secret, it, it's a hidden meaning behind words. There's so many in there, and, and you have to look at this. It's a particular remez word that you, when you dig deeper in there, you find the words, there's, there's lots of them in there. We can, I mean, there's dozens of them in the Bible that do that, but that's, that's what they say. You, you dig deeper. You know, there's a word that says, uh, how can we find, find out the unsearchable riches of the word? They are unsearchable because there's different levels. levels. The more you study, the more you find out. Okay, the ritual of twin goats was a visual aid to the congregation of Israel so that they could see what was going on. The sacrifice of the goat for the Lord and then the sending away of the scapegoat is one of the few things that they were eyewitnesses to. Everything else other than the actual sacrifices that the high priest made at the brazen altar was done in the confines of the tabernacle where only the high priest could enter on that day. The goat for the Lord, which was sacrificed, represented the harsh reality of atonement for sin. This goat was a picture type of our cleansing and purification. Remember, we've studied this before, Leviticus 17, 11. We talked about that in blood covenant uh, study. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon an altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then in Hebrews 9, 22, we can read this. And according to the law, most all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. Wow. In other words, something innocent had to die for our sins. The other goat, the scapegoat or goat of departure, represented the wonderful consequences and benefits of that sacrifice. See, we have one that represents the atonement, and then the picture of the scapegoat or the, the goat of departure represented the benefits, one of the benefits of that goat. And, and Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one represented the shedding of innocent blood for sin. The other represented the complete removal of sin as a result of that shed blood. <clears throat> one was the atonement. The other was the benefit. Psalm 103, 12 says, and talking about the, and it points to, directly to the goat. It says, Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, you, you realize that if you keep going east and west, you never, you never get there, right? You never get to the east. I mean, the west from the east, you just keep going round and round. That's, that's why you don't say from north to south, because once you go to the north, now you're headed south. But east and west, if you keep going in the same direction, it's, in other words, it will never come back. It's, as far as the east, in other words, the east and west can never meet. So here's a quote from one of the commentaries I thought was really good on, on this particular passage of Levit Leviticus 16.22. 
<coughs> this quote from a, it says, the carrying away of expiated sin, which I, the things in paragraphs are, are mine. I inserted those to make it help a little bit to understand it, but you probably have to read this two or three times. But it, the carrying away of the expiated or atoned for sin and not the destruction of the unexpiated sinners is the meaning of this impressive rite. And has it, had it been possible, the same goat that was sacrificed would have been sent into the desert. As that could not be done, an ideal unity was established between the two. One, the one sacrifice represented the fact of, of expiation or atonement. The other one driven away represented the consequences of the expiation or the atonement and the complete removal of sin. The expiation, the atonement was made within the veil, but a visible token of its completeness was given to help feeble faith. See, they even had feeble faith back then. In the blessed mystery of the unseen propitiation, which is the appeasing of the wrath of God. What was divided in the symbol between the twin goats is all done by the one sacrifice. Notice that's cap capitalized. The one sacrifice who, was, who has entered into the holiest of all at once, priest and sacrifice, and with his own blood made atonement for sin and has likewise carried away the sin of the world into the land of forgetfulness, whence it never can return. Isn't that great to read that and see that we have uh, a scapegoat, a, a, a Jesus that was the sacrifice, and he would become our high priest and sacrifice at the same time. See, he didn't have to go in and make uh, an atonement for his sins because he was sinless. He didn't have to go in and, and first atone for his sins. He, uh, he was the high priest. He, he went in right into the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, as our sacrifice, carrying the blood uh, as the pr high priest. Verse 22 also says, The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities uh, to an uninhabited land. If you do a word study on uninhabited, listen to this here. Here's what you'll find. A land cut off, completely isolated, someplace impossible to return from. Thus the sins, iniquities, were utterly lost as though it had never been, never been forgotten and they could not return. Isn't that good news to think about it? Your sins, see your past, your slate of sins. When you accept Jesus and the, the blood atones, your, the blood of Jesus atones for you, then all that stuff, your slate's wiped clean. So don't go back to the past. Don't keep digging it up and bringing it forward because it's already been removed. It cannot return. But we bring it up sometimes. We dig up, digging up, we're digging up the bones, you know, of that, which we shouldn't do. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You know, before we move on, to the next uh, chapter or next paragraph right there, I want to just say one thing about this. We talked about, you know, we talked about casting lots. Uh, the, the high priest had to cast the lots. This is not in your lesson. I just wrote this down uh, yesterday, and I didn't have time to include it. But the high priest had to cast lots on the two goats, right? And the way he did this, he had a pouch called the pouch of, or the, uh, the yeah, the pouch of decision. There was two, two perfectly same stones in there. And he reached his hands in there, both hands at the same time, and he picked one in his right hand, one in his left hand, and he lifted it up, you know, whatever was in his left hand, whether it be a, a, a yes stone or a no stone. If it was a yes stone or a black or the white stone, then it was the one for the Lord, and the other one was the one for the, the scapegoat. So, you know, it you never knew what it was going to be, but there was always hope in it. It would be the one they always considered the right hand as righteousness, so they wanted that, and they thought they had better chances for their uh, their sins to be forgiven if it was in the hand of righteousness, whether it was versus the hand of uh, uh, wickedness. 
So I want to tell you, and so, and we also seen talked about the scarlet uh, ribbon on the goats, the scarlet uh, deal on the on the goat's head. You know, it turned when the goat actually went off the cliff and died. Then the then the uh, same scarlet ribbon that was hanging on the on the doors of the tabernacle were uh, it turned white. That was an visible sign to them that their sins were when the the goat had reached out there, their sins were removed, and so that atonement was complete when that ribbon was. Uh, um, uh, when it turned white. So I want to tell you some things here. Here's some things. This, these are written in the Talmud. This is the Talmud is, uh, is uh, verbal uh, or uh, vor- verbal records written down uh, by the rabbis and the, and the priests and things like that. And you can, you can search them by, they have a lot of things in there. But anyway, they, there was four, listen to this, there were four ominous events that took place 40 years before the destruction, before the destruction of the temple, which was in 70 A.D., the lots for the Lord's goat would always come up in the left hand for 40 years straight. The scarlet thread or cord stopped turning white. The westernmost lamp on the golden lampstand would not stay lit. And the reason that's significant is because the western lamp in the, in the, in the candlestick that's that, or the, the lampstand that's in the, in the holy place in there, there's seven, remember, it's a menorah. The western uh, a lamp always stayed lit. All the other lamps were lit off of that when, when they cleaned and refilled them with oil. So it always stayed lit, and it had to stay lit. Well, for those 40 years, they couldn't keep it lit. It would go out at all, all times, you know, and they couldn't keep it lit. And that was, that was an anomaly that they couldn't understand. And then the temple doors, this was in the temple times, the temple tor- doors would open by themselves. Now, that, what's, why, why is that significant? Because these doors were 75 feet tall, I believe is what it said. 75 feet tall, solid wood, and they took, it took 21 men to open each door each morning. And so all of a sudden, these doors started opening up by themselves. So that happened in 70 A.D., 40 years, 40 years after our Lord was crucified. Does that tell you something? You know, the Jewish people, just they, they should have took that as a note that things have changed, you know. What this showing is that this temple business is no longer what the Jews ought to be t- paying attention to. They ought to be paying attention to who they crucified 40 years ago, which was 30 A.D., which is the time that uh, Jesus was crucified. I know it, he, he lived here 33, but if you go back and study, it's actually the birth time was like 3 before before Christ, 3, three uh, B.C. and all that. But you, anyway. That's what happened in that. Forty years, these things happened in there. And uh, and, and another, well, I won't get in that. I don't have time because we've got too much to cover. But anyway, I just thought that was, you know, neat to understand that, you know, God was already showing the Hebrew people the ominous signs that were going on that uh, these things, you know, pay attention to what's going on. The doors won't stay shut. The western lamp won't stay lit. The scarlet thread don't turn uh, white anymore. And the, and the Lord's goat uh, always comes up in the left hand, which is wickedness. Let me tell you, that uh, for that 40 years, and we know that because the priesthood was a bought and paid for office by that time. The, you know, Caiaphas was the priest at the time of Jesus. Look how crooked he was, you know. So anyway, that was just a sign of that, that time. Truly, these Old Testament rituals carry a depth and richness that only God could create. The Day of Atonement foreshadowed the ultimate atonement that Christ provides. Praise the Lord, no longer do we need to sacrifice animals to cover our sins, nor do we need to impute our sins to a scapegoat to have them carried away. Jesus has been sacrificed and scapegoated for us. Our sins have been atoned for and removed. Let me give you some scriptures in Hebrews. 
Hebrews 10, 11 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. See, that was an imperfect law, an imperfect plan. Jesus was perfection. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 3 and 4 says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sin. In Hebrews 10, 10, By by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that good to know that he took it once and for all? Yes and amen. The blood of Jesus is so much better. And what I'm talking about is his new covenant, the new covenant of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9, uh, 11 through 15, very, uh, it's a little long, but it's very good. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal of the eternal inheritance. Now, let me explain that a little bit. Verse 15, I want to go over that a little bit detail. He says, it says, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant. Well, Strong's number 3316, the Greek word mesites is for that word uh, mediator properly means an arbitrator guaranteeing the performance of all the terms stipulated in the covenant or agreement. This is such good news here, so you need to listen up. This, t- this tells us that Jesus is the executor of the new covenant, the new will and testament of, of God. The old will and testament, the old covenant of the law has been done away with, and because of the new covenant, new will and testament, we have new and better benefits in our inheritance. The new covenant of blood, atonement for the believers, well, just let me just say right there, just look at that and what it for, for what it, take it for what it's worth. Every, all of you that have a will and uh, a will uh, for yourself, for your life, you have an executor assigned, and that executor, his job is to make sure that the that the things that are in that will are taken care of and they're not varied from. Jesus is going to do that too because he is the mediator of that will, and by his own blood, he will mediate and say, so whatever the promises of God are, they are yes and amen. Those promises will take place because he is the one that's taken the blood into the holy place, into the holy of holies, and he is guaranteed those things as a benefit for our inheritance. Wow, do we ever have an inheritance? Listen to this. The new blood of the blood, uh, new covenant of the blood atonement for the believer includes these three elements. Forgiveness from the Father. Our debt is paid in full. It is finished. Hebrews 10, 17 through 18 says, Then he adds, Their sin and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And also, we receive acceptance by the Father. All is reconciled. Our position as sons and daughters has been restored. Ephesians 5, uh, Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6 says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted 
in the beloved. See, because of the beloved, which is Jesus, we've been accepted. We've been adopted as sons and daughters once again, and we can we have acceptance by him, by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's a great thing to know. And then here, listen to this, access to the Father. We can enter the Holy of Holies, his presence on the merits of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience in our bodies, washed with pure water. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What he's telling us here is these are things that are part of our inheritance even right now. We can have acceptance, we can have access, and we can have forgiveness all at the same package right there. And we, you know, while we're here now, let's accept it, let's move it, and let's do, you know, take advantage of those things right here. Go boldly to the throne of grace because we, we, when we go to the throne of grace, we're taking God's looking at us, and he sees the blood. He doesn't see us. He sees the blood. Thank God for that. This is the whole summary of the Day of Atonement fulfilled by Jesus on the cross to restore mankind to the place of right relationship with God. Our Father God loves his great creation, his children, and wants them to be in his very presence where he can fellowship with Him, with them. But because our most holy, holy God cannot tolerate uncleanness and sin to be in his presence, there has to be a removal of sin because we can, so we can enter into and enjoy this fellowship. The precious blood of Jesus provides the way that we, the sinner and unclean, can be in his presence and fellowship with him. He loves the sinner and welcomes him in, but he can never allow the sin. This is the amazing grace that we always talk about. This is the grace that is built upon the sufficiency and completeness of Christ's sacrifice, both to remove our sin and to reconcile us to God. Now, what now so far, what we have been seen so far would be enough to show you the fulfillment by Jesus of this feast of the Lord, the Day of Atonement. But what we've seen in this in this fulfillment shown here is in the present tense. In other words, this is what we know so far. Is there still a future fulfillment both for the heavenly people, which are believers, and for the earthy, earthly people, the Jews, uh, that are still here, his people that are still here? Two, here's two points to ponder in closing. Atonement in the ju judgment seat of Christ. During the tribulation period, most think, most think that, that represented by the, by the day, ten days of all, when Christians are, uh, are with the Lord, could it be that this is the time of the judgment seat of Christ? where believers are judged for their works. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then he writes also in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's day will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So as believers, our judgment day has come and will serve through the sacrificial offering of Jesus on the cross. Our names are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, I should say. And one day we will stand before the throne of judgment to give account of our, of our lives, just as it says in the Scripture we just read. Our life now is, is an ongoing examination. Listen to this. Our life now is an ongoing examination, a test, and every moment is irreparable except by repentance. In other words, we can sin, we, we, we do sin, but we can always go before him because the blood is, is ever 
alive. The blood is ever, ever, it never dried up. It's always there. Every careless word we speak, every worthy, unworthy we deed, uh, do, do, deed we do will be exposed on that day of judgment. We must live our lives as though that day is imminent. And what I say about that, when we go to the judgment seat of Christ, I, this is what I believe, and I think most believe this same way, but this is judgment seat of Christ. We'll be doing that if we're, if we're raptured uh, before the tribulation period, then we'll be spending our time at the judgment seat of Christ before the second coming. And that's when the, the rewards, that's when we'll give account of our lives and, we'll, and it will be decided whether we are, what we've done, you know, is worthy of reward or not. That's why it said back there in that passage, you know, it says your deeds will become evident uh, where it says uh, uh, about the, the uh, whether it's gold, silver, or, or uh, precious stones or, or uh, hay and stubble, which will be burned up, which will be evident and show that. So those, even, but you will be saved by the fire. But what about the people of Israel, the people that promise? Well, let me, did I say that last, uh, last sentence in there? We must live our lives as though that day is imminent. In other words, that judgment day could come any time for us. We're already been judged by the blood of Jesus, but that judgment day, you know, when we go before him, we need to be aware of that because we need to be working the good works after we have been born again. We need to be working the good works and turn that life around. We, we're, we are by grace, but it's not, it's not uh, dirty grace. It's, it's grace that has been paid for with a high price, and that means our works, which were assigned to us before, uh, before that. But what about the people of Israel, the people of the promise? If you remember in the Feast of Trumpets study, these ten days of all leading up to the Day, day of Atonement were also called the time of Jacob's trouble. You can go back and read that in the, in the study of the, of the trumpets also uh, called the Daniel's 70th week. And this is surely a reference to this passage in Jeremiah, what we're talking about in, in Jacob's troubles. Jeremiah 30, uh, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. In other words, it's a time of great testing for Israel. But he, listen to this last part of that. It's a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And then Zechariah 12, 10 through 11 I love this scripture because it always points that there's hope for the for the remnant of Israel that that will they will come to their around to be saved. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. God still loves his people, Israel, and there will be a time when they become partakers of the new covenant also. And we believers will be witnesses to this at the second coming of Jesus when we come to, to defeat the Antichrist and his armies at the bar battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19 uh, tells us about this. It's in verses 11 through 14 in, in chapter 19 of Revelation. Now, I, this is John. He's, he's still recording this. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who is sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with, ro with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. That's us. We're going to get to come back on white horses and see that. 
So we'll have more. That's the end of the lesson tonight. But we'll have more on the prophetic implications for Israel next time when we study the Feast of Tabernacles. It is so good. There's going to be a lot of that when we come to it next time. So how did I do? Man, we got right on the money, folks. All right. I hope you all got some good stuff out of that tonight. It was good for me. I know it. It's uh, It was a good word. If you study it, take this back and study even deeper on your own. Read that chapter 16. And and I didn't finish up on the on the other from uh, all the way through 18, but you'll read it and you'll see those other things. There's other more, even more scriptures in there that uh, pertain and point to Jesus. Look at those things and see if you can pick out the things that are pointing to Jesus in those scriptures, the last ones. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your, how your word so clearly and so uh, in so many multiple ways reveals the plan of salvation you have for each one of us, Father. The plan of salvation for believers, Father, and the plan of salvation, it's for everyone, but also you have a plan. You have not forgotten the, the people of your the promise, the people that you uh, called your people from the beginning, the chosen people, the chosen ones your people of Israel, Father. And we thank you, Father, that we can we will be witnesses to that that one day when they look up they, they look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will realize what they have done and they will come to a saving knowledge. They will come into that grace and mercy that will be poured out upon them by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you so much for the for the plan that you have. It's a perfect plan, Father. We it could not have been done except by you, Father. It could only have been worked out. It could have only been planned by the, the divine mind of God. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you've allowed us to have that uh, measure of faith to accept that and to be a witness and to be a part, partaker of that now and for the rest of our lives. Father, help us to be good stewards of what you've shown us. Help us to be good stewards of the salvation that you have given to us, each and every one. Father, we bless your name as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.